Read with me. Psalm 103. A Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your mouth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Dear Father, we just come before you and acknowledge that you are, um, you are our Father, um, a Father who has compassion on us. Um, we are just your children, and we're in desperate need of you today. Just as we sang, Lord, we need you. Um, we are no less need of your grace um, today than we were when we were um, lost. We need your sustaining grace today. Um, and Lord, uh, we need your mercy, um, we need your wisdom, um, really everything you have we need um, because we lack in every area where you um, are strong. And so God, um, as weak people, we just come before you and just ask that you would speak to us um, through your word, um, God, as a father to his children, um, as you always do, um, that we might be um, children who um, leave here more, um, more in love with you, Father, more, um, more, um, just knowing your love for us, knowing your compassion for us, knowing our standing with you as your sons and daughters. So God, just go before us today in this word, Lord, speak through uh, my words, Lord, stop my mouth, from saying anything that's of me, and Lord, open it only if it's of you, and God, would you just inform us through your word that we might be transformed. Um, so Lord God, just, uh, I know I feel like uh, just a little child today, um, desperately need, in need of you, so go before me and go before all of us, Lord God, give us strength. And um, Lord, even, I just want to pray again for those who are here, who just feel weak, who feel tired, who feel weary, Lord, would you just speak to us? Um, Lord, comfort us. Um, Lord, only you can comfort us like we need to be comforted and filled up. So God, um, have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Um, amen. So we're continuing our parenting series. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I'm just so uh, thankful for it. I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to uh, be part of this um, and just looking forward to what God's going to do in our body, uh, how he's, how he's going to continue to shape us as parents, as sons and daughters of 
the true parent, the true father, God. And so this morning, um, the, the topic, the, the theme is um, parenting with grace. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Um, and I, I did a lot of reading this, this week about um, different parenting articles, different parenting books, like all these different resources. And, and I, just ha- I found this article um, written in parent.com. Um, there had to be a parent.com, I'm sure. Um, but uh, it was entitled 400 Years of Parenting Advice, published in May 2015. Um, Edward Shepard says this. And he's talking of the fear and anxiety that the many sources and contradictory parental, parental advice published out there cause in parents today. All this anxiety, he says, has made parents into, into a dream segment for marketers. Families are one of the largest consumer segments in American, his, in American society. There are more than 4 million babies born in the U.S. every year. Total U.S. spending on baby products alone was at least $23 billion in 2013. Um, this is already dated, right? Um, it will cost over $290,000 to raise a child born today to the age of 15 or 18. So parents, consider if you want to have another baby there. Um, today, Amazon returns 35,814 results for parenting books. That was in 2015. 35,000. Uh, a Google search for parenting advice blog returns 104 million results. Yet all this information doesn't necessarily mean that parents are better informed. As sources of information have multiplied, it may mean that parenting biases and fears are simply more entrenched. Believe in permissive parenting? Google returns 168,000 links to back you up. What about authoritarian parenting? Google returns 211,000 results for you. So there's a few, just a few observations uh, as, we, as we are going to dive into the Bible. Um, a few observations I made this week. Um, observation number one, the Bible, and this is no brainwave, right? The Bible is our source for all wisdom and instruction that we all will ever need. Um, observation number two, there are surprisingly few verses in Scripture that explicitly provide information on how to parent. Observation number three, God designed the family, children, and clearly cares deeply about a parent-child relationship. We know that. He designed it. So here's an assumption by all those observations. God must be telling us how to parent in other implicit ways in Scripture. Because there's 12, maybe a dozen verses, and 35,000 verses, or 31,000 verses, that tell us explicitly how to parent. Maybe he's telling us in implicit ways in Scripture. That's an assumption. Um, there's a book I love. It's called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. I highly recommend it. And one of his chapters is all about parenting in this busy world. He call, It's chapter six in the book. It's called A Cruel Kindergarten. Uh, diagnosis number four, you need, you need to stop freaking out about your kids. That's the title. I, I love this chapter. Um, he says this, when you think about it, what does the Bible actually say about parenting? Child rearing is hardly the main theme of scripture. God doesn't provide many Specific instructions about the parent-child relationship, except that parents should teach their children about God, discipline them, be thankful for them, and not exasperate them. Filling in the details depends on the family, the culture, the spirit's wisdom, and a whole lot of trial and error. There are ways to screw up your kids for life, but thankfully the Happy Meal is not one of them. There is not a straight line from Ronald McDonald to eternal rebellion. Much like there is not... A direct correlation between doodling loudly in the service as a toddler and doing meth as a teenager. Could it be that beyond the basics of godly parenting, most of the other techniques and convictions are just nibbling around the edges? Certainly there are a lot of ways that good parents make their kids a little more manageable from day to day, but even the kid hooked on Angry Birds who just downed a pack of Fun Dip and is now watching his fifth Pixar movie of the week still has a decent shot at not being a sociopath. John Walmart in the 1600s said this, when I was young, I had six theories and no kids, and now I have six kids and no theories. Um, That was 1600s. And the best, and I I, I like to say, Lori and I say this all the time, the best parents are those who don't have kids yet. Um, You know, and those of you who are parents, you know that you thought you had it figured out before you had kids, and then after you had kids, it's like, whoa, right? I had no idea. So, um, for some reason, God thought that a dozen or so explicit verses on parenting and the 31,000 verses in the Bible was enough for us. 
um, enough for parents to go on. For some reason, he must have thought that the dozen or so verses coupled with the older saints around us who have parented before us and the Holy Spirit inside you might be enough for us. So here's my conclusion. God didn't have to tell us how to parent more than a dozen or so times explicitly in Scripture because he's shown us thousands of times implicitly in Scripture. He's more interested in showing us than telling us how to be parents in the Bible. Showing us than telling us. What I mean is that we don't, have, have, we don't need more than a dozen verses because we have thousands and countless of pictures of, of, of God the Father doing what he does to his children in the Bible. And so we're going to look at some of those, time, those, those, those um, examples this morning. Um, we're talking about how to parent with grace. And we're not going to look at 70,000 Amazon titles. The last thing we as pastors want to do is add to the noise of information. You don't need that. You don't need more information. Um, what we need is to, to, to focus our gaze on our Heavenly Father in Scripture. And that's what we're going to do this morning, to inform how we parent with grace. So here's my thesis for this morning. In order to parent our kids with grace, we need to, number one, understand the grace of our Heavenly Father in Scripture. Number two, parent our kids like we see He's parented us in Scripture. And number three, continually show our kids the grace of our Father in Scripture. There's one thing all those had in common, Scripture. And that's where we're going to look. So this morning, we're going to simply look at a few passages out of the many that show us the grace of the Father and how we should parent because of it. So the structure is very loose this morning. I'm going to look at two things, one passage at a time. Our Father's grace for us, number one. And number two, how we should parent our kids the same way. Pretty simple. And then lastly, we'll look at how to continually show our kids the grace of the Father in Scripture. So here we go. Let me pray uh, one more time, just asking the Lord's favor. Um, God, we, God, we know that you are wise and you give us your, your word for all wisdom. It's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training up um, in every way, um, uh, the man of God, uh, to disciple us, to equip us. So God, just equip us now in your word, we pray in, in your name. Jesus, amen. So <clears throat> I thought a good place to start would be to, to ask, uh, what is grace? It's one of those words we throw out in, in, in church all the time, like uh, grace and glory and holiness and the gospel, and we don't define it very often. We just say them like we know what we mean when we say them. So I thought it'd be good for us to back up and, and um, look for um, what is grace? What is grace? <clears throat> um, could I ask a huge favor? Could someone give me a cup of water? My voice is going to... Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. He, he was first. Sorry, Dan. <clears throat> he has more grace than you. <clears throat> um. Uh, so here we are. What is grace? Some of the standard definitions. Unmerited favor, right? You've heard that before. Getting what you don't deserve, as opposed to mercy, which is not getting what you deserve. I like Lori's definition. I think my wife is the wisest person on the planet. I talk to her all the time. Um, she says, grace is kindness giving, given to an inferior. I really like that um, definition. Thanks, brother. Thanks for your grace and mercy there. <clears throat> um, so kindness to an inferior. And the way I thought of it this week was everything God has done for man from the fall till now falls under his grace. After the fall, there didn't need to be man. Apart from God's grace, there's man after the fall. God didn't need to continue us. He could have ended us right there. So everything after the fall till now is, is a result of God's grace. Some of us learned grace from our parents. They were great at showing grace to us. Um, But many of us didn't learn grace from our parents. Many of us in here learned from our fathers and mothers at an early age that affection uh, from them had to be earned. I talked to a brother recently um, from WCC who by any measure of the world is successful. He has a great job, a great family, Um, but he's never heard well done from his father. Um, Never could do enough, early enough, fast enough, Um, to feel his father's pleasure, to feel treasured and accepted by his father. Others in here maybe have heard well done from our parents, but it's only because of some achievement. Uh, 
some great thing you've done, performed, and to hear those words, to feel your father's affection, your mother's affection, you strive and strive and strive to get it again. That's, your, that was, that's been your relationship with your parents for some of us. Um, so you learned early on that your earthly parents, to look at you with affection and based, uh, was based on what you did and not who you were. It wasn't grace, unmerited favor, but the opposite. Your merit brought you favor. And so what does grace from the Father look like? And I'd like to look at one passage first to see and define it. So first passage, Deuteronomy 7. It'll be up on the screen, but you can open it up with me or click to it or swipe to it or turn the page to it. Deuteronomy 7, um, 6 through 8. I want to read this. Um, So this is before God's chosen people failed or succeeded. This is what God said. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. So so stop there. Verse 6, you are his treasured possession possession. So before they had done anything good or bad, before they actually fulfilled the law, uh, he said, you are my treasured possession for your people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Do you know why God chose them as their treasure, as his treasured possession? Why did he do that? Why? Why would he do that? What was so special about them? Uh, The next verses tell us why God chose them. Listen to this. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So, did you hear that? It wasn't because they were great. It wasn't because they are awesome. It wasn't because they had anything in their favor. Um, it wasn't because they could perform. So why? And it's, the answer is in verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you know what this verse is saying about our father? You know what it's saying? It's saying it's because he loves people that he set his love on you. He loves you because he loves you. Is that redundant? Actually, I think like this, this is grace. And if we don't get this, then we don't understand grace. He loves you because he loves you. This definition is, that's the heart of it. Um, this is grace. God loves you because he does, because he feels like it, because he wants to, because it brings him pleasure to. He's not compelled to. He doesn't have to. The more obedient or great you are does not compel him to love you or treasure you anymore. He treasures you because he loves you. He loves you because he chooses you. He chooses you because he treasures you. He delivers you because out of slavery because he treasures you, and so on and so on. We can just go on a loop. So here's principle number one. Grace is love for love's sake. It's another maybe definition of grace. Grace is love for love's sake. Dear family, do we believe, this is a question for us, do we believe our Father's love is contingent on something? That, that he has to see something special in us to love us? Do we believe our Father's love for us is, is now or, and not future? Um, that he actually loves the current version of you, um, not the future 3.0, more sanctified version of you? Maybe all God wants is that we treasure him as much as he already treasures us, to be satisfied with him as much as he's satisfied with us. In the garden, God was satisfied with, there's another example, uh, with what he had done in creating Adam and Eve. He said they were very good, right? Before they actually fulfilled their calling to fill the earth to subdue it, before they did their work, God declared them very good. Before they did anything. How about you? Are you very good in God's eyes? Are you his treasured possession? Right now, is he well pleased with you? Or do you need to go out and fulfill your mission first before he sees you that way? How many people do you need to bring to Christ uh, in the kingdom before he treasures you? Do your kids need to grow up, become believers, have families of their own who all get saved, and at last your work is done, and then you fulfill your purpose, and then you look good in his eyes, and then he'll treasure you? How much money do you have to give to the church? How many Bible passages memorized of devotionals around your tables, of service to the church, of pleasing your family, your spouse? How much work do you have to knock off a never-ending to-do list before you're worthy of your father's attention? 
and affection, before you've paid off the debt of that one past sin that's haunted you forever? When will your work be done so you can know that you're his treasured possession? How little must we think of God's holiness and righteousness, right? Like um, that, that somehow being good Christians could earn his affections. He doesn't want your goodness. He doesn't want your ability to lead people to Christ, disciple your kids, do service in the church in order to love you more. No, that's much too small to deserve his affections. You must be perfect, Jesus said. Your righteousness must exceed everyone else's to deserve to be treasured from your daddy. You haven't done near enough yet. Keep working. Keep doing it. You must keep working yourself to death. You still won't be treasured because of what you've done. You must be as perfect and as good as Jesus to earn his love. We're silly people. Only Jesus deserves the Father's affections. So try as you will, you won't be loved and treasured because he's pleased with your work. It will never happen. If you have given your life to God through Christ, God has given you perfection through Christ. You are his treasured possession now. You are the son, the daughter in whom he's well pleased right now. You will see your daddy run to you with open arms one day and hear his words of affection for you, not because of everything you do from your baptism till death, but because of everything Jesus has done from his baptism till his death and beyond. His perfection is yours right now. Therefore, the father's affection is yours right now. Long to be treasured no longer. You are treasured right now. Parents, do we show that we treasure our kids and love them for love's sake? The broken down 1.0 version of your kids. Or are we conveying a message of contingency in our love like and a treasuring only reserved for kids 2.0 and 3.0? Do they need to get better grades, better jobs, better manners before you will show your affection, before they hear you treasure them? Next passage. Here's a context. It's, in, it's, it's also in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. You can turn there if you want. Moses has just finished retelling all these laws for his covenant people. He's reestablishing his covenant with his, his, his people before they go into the promised land, before they enter into this, this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is reminding them of God's covenant a love for them, and the, 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 co- the covenant, uh, the law which, with, with which they must obey in order to, to keep this, maintain this relationship, and, and God's promising to, to love them and treasure them. Um, but there's a covenant relationship, right? Um, it's, it's a bilateral thing. They must obey, and God will continue to be his, their God, and they will continue to be his people. So let me read Deuteronomy 30, um, 15 through 20. That's the setting. And, and Moses is laying this out before them. He's laying out a choice before his people, before they enter the promised land. He says this. He says, see, in verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering in to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to, to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, seems obvious, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Seems like a pretty obvious choice, but of course you know what happens, right? As a whole, they don't listen and obey. They choose death and curses, as crazy as that sounds. And what happens? They get booted out of the promised land and exiled um, in the future. They continue to disobey, and they continue, and eventually God promises exile, and and he delivers. Um, He has to boot them out of the promised land. So principle, receiving God's wrath and curses 
is our choice, not his. God's wrath isn't just his anger. It's the result of us not letting him or wanting him to be gracious to us. Like we're not letting him be gracious to us. And it sounds crazy. Why would we do that? But we do it all the time because we think we have a better way, right? So sometimes the father lets calamity happen to us. Um, Sometimes he lets trials and suffering, and he even brings it our way, and he lifts his protection from us so that we might experience those things, um, so that he can walk through them with us. That's actually grace. Parents, if we will always protect our kids from harm or from consequences of their choices of disobedience, they will never experience what grace really is. If we always protect our kids from harm and consequences of their choices, they will never experience grace like it truly is. Principle, grace doesn't always look like protection. Grace doesn't always look like protection. Sometimes it's letting your kid experience the full force of consequence for an action or choice. Sometimes it's okay to let your kids fail. Not just in, in disobedience, but like maybe they want to try something and they're not sure if they can do it. And you're looking at them like, wow, that's not a good idea to jump off of that thing. You might hurt yourself. Um, so obviously you have to protect them. But sometimes they just want to try something. And, and if we don't let them, we don't let them fail, then that's not grace. Grace is letting them learn how to fail. It's much more important to learn than success because this life has more failures than success. Not every kid's a winner. Not every kid uh, breaks the tape equally with every other kid. There should be a score in a soccer game. I'm sorry. Um, there should be. Um, grace doesn't always look like protection. I had lunch with my son, Josiah, my oldest, yesterday. Um, he's 21. Um, the year 2016 into, and he gave me permission to say all this, by the way. Um, 2016 into early 2017 was really hard for us. Um, he chose not to go to school, wanted to pursue another um, course, which we, to- we were totally fine with. Um, Lori and I both believe our kids have that, you know, they have that choice. They can reach their full potential with or without a degree. You may or may, or may not disagree with that, but, but we, that's what we believe. And we support our kids either way. If they want to go to school, great. He didn't. Cool. We established a covenant together, though, that he would work towards a certain goal and path um, to pursue a career in filmmaking, which is what he wanted to do, and move out. Um, and he experienced some roadblocks and hiccups on the way, and they weren't his fault. And so we, get, we extended deadlines, and we gave him some more grace and more grace to live in our home to continue to help him. Um, but about a year ago, it became clear that he wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. He wasn't holding up his end of the covenant. Um, and it wasn't because of external forces, it was because of his own choices. Um, it became clear he didn't want to move out, he was too scared to, and he wanted to stay home. So um, I did what the only loving, gracious, only a loving, gracious father could do, is I kicked him out of our house. And it was really hard. And I didn't want to do it. But I knew I had to, because that's what love looked like in that moment. That's what the love, that's, I, I just, I trust, I mean, we, it was hard, but we really believed that's what grace looked like in that moment. Um, I was disappointed. I felt betrayed, but I knew I had to do it. Stressful. It was really stressful. So the week right after this really hard conversation, we went to Disneyland. Um, and that's the truth. It wasn't because we had it. It was because we already bought tickets. We already bought tickets. And so we had a really good time with them. I mean, like, it was awesome. We were at Disneyland, kind of surreal. I, I love, you know, we still had this good relationship, and I loved them, and we had fun. And we came back, and a week later, he had to move out. Um, kind of a weird thing. Um, but uh, I asked him yesterday um, if he thought it was more gracious of us to let him stay at home at that moment or to kick him out. And he thought about it for a few minutes and said he thought the latter. Um, it was more gracious to kick him out, he thought. He's learning all sorts of lessons. His world is bigger. His view of God is bigger. He's learned that jumping off a cliff is not as scary as he thought it would be. That his God is bigger than he thought he, he was. He learned how to trust. He learned um, that we still love him. Our relationship is better than ever. Um, and he would never have learned that had he not experienced the trial um, of exile. And that's why God did it with his people. He, he brought back a remnant of people who were faithful. He restored them to himself, as he always does through scripture. God doesn't protect us from our choices all the time. 
He shows us what we should do, blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. Sometimes when we disobey, God has mercy enough uh, on us to, let, to not let us experience the full consequences. And sometimes when we disobey, he has grace enough to let us like, uh, get the consequences that we might grow that we might see our folly, that we might see the end of our sin and see him as the end of the gospel, see him as better. He is our greatest good. And, and as, a, as a contrast to what we thought was our greatest good, that's a lesson you can only learn through um, exile and trial and full consequences falling upon you. And so ki- parents, do not protect your kids from the, all, all the consequences of their choices because they won't see God as better. We wouldn't see our need for Jesus. Next passage, Luke 15. I'll be there for a while. This to me is, I love this passage. And I think it's, um, it's an implicit way that God shows us what a father he is. Luke 15, very familiar passage. Um, scroll there, click there, however you want to get there. Um, let me read uh, 15, 11 through 24. And he said, there was a man, Jesus was talking. Well, but first, first, let me, let me, read, let me um, read the context. So chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, this is the context. Um, he, you know, Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders have a hard time with this. And so, so in verse 1 and 2, um, the, it says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. And verse two says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that's the context. So Jesus tells three parables, one of a lost sheep and how the, the owner of that sheep, when it gets that sheep back, um, there's rejoicing. Um, and he says, you know, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then and he tells the parable of the lost coin in the same kind of story, but in a different way. Um, he says, so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he tells this, probably the most popular, the most uh, famous of, this, of, these, of these three. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is the lowest a Jewish person could go because only Gentiles, um, the, the pigs themselves is what Jews called them, um, raised pigs. You know, Jews don't raise pigs. They're unclean animals. And here he is, this, this Jewish guy who has to live with pigs. It's the lowest he could ever reach. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And we know uh, the story, the oldest brother is indignant, he's jealous, um, he, 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 he can't believe his father would do this for this wayward son when he's been so faithful, and, and he won't come in to celebrate, and his father comes and says to him in verse 31 through 32, he says this, he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We don't have time to fully unpack this passage. Um, For the purposes of this morning, we just want to look to see what kind of grace our Father has 
for those who come to him in repentance, what kind of grace our Father has for his children. That's the purpose this morning. I submit to your further study, uh, if you, to study it. It's really, it's really a fascinating uh, parable um, talking about um, many things. But here, we're just, for our purposes, we're going to look at the Father. And uh, first, we see the Father actually give his son, right, in his inheritance early. Um, and of course, the son goes and wastes it, right? Was that like an unpredictable outcome? Um, right? Um, do you think the father in the story was ignorant and didn't know his son was going to do what he did? I'm guessing if he was smart, he probably knew, okay, he's going to do this. And of course, I, I believe, of course, he knew. So first, we see that our father's grace sometimes is giving his children over to their desires. God does that a lot in scripture. He gives his people over to their desires, um, and that's, not necess- that's, that's still grace knowing that it will lead to pain and a pig pit. It's still grace. And why is it grace? So that when his children come back, and hopefully they will, right, uh, he can show them the greatest love, forgiveness, that leads to restoration, that leads to adoption and relationship and nearness, giving them over to their desires um, because sometimes it's the only way they will be desperate enough for their own true father. Principle. Sometimes grace is letting your child go. Parents, sometimes grace is letting your child navigate their own way into a pig pit. And you help them get there, even. Because there's no other way their defiant little minds will get what you've been trying to teach them. And look, the son in the story sees something he's never seen before. How awesome his father was that he left. How awesome his life used to be. Um, How awesome it would be to go back. And he wouldn't have seen that unless he was feeding pigs. So the son plans how he's going to come back. You know, have you done this before? You're rehearsing, okay, there's a conflict coming and you're like trying to imagine how it's going to go and you're trying to think of what you're going to say and then what your dad's going to say and like, how are you going to... So he's doing that. He's like, okay, this is what I'm going to say to my dad. Okay, God or father, um, you know, I, I, I don't deserve to be anything more than your servant. And that, so he works his thing, right? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So was a son wrong in that logic? No, he was right. He wasn't worthy to be called a son, but a servant at best. In fact, he didn't even deserve to be taken back as a servant, I don't think. Then what happens? One of the best verses in scripture, I think, I love it, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So here's some principles. Number one, grace is not saying, I told you so. It's not gloating as a parent. And number two, grace can't wait to forgive and show affection. Parents, our goal isn't to show our kids how wise we were in our advice and wait for them to realize it and tell us. Um, Letting our children live out the folly of their decisions is not about telling them, see, you should have stuck around. Uh, Live out the folly, you know, uh, you should have listened and obeyed. It's about showing them a father who's ready to run toward them at the first hint of repentance who can't wait to take them back. So parents, parenting with grace is not about ultimately showing your kids that you are grace, uh, that you are grace filled, um, but it's showing them God is. We don't accomplish our task if our kids think we're gracious, but if they think God is, we're pointing them to a God who's gracious. Um, and we do that through, through giving them grace, of course. But it's ultimately God's grace, because we're imperfect, right? The son manages to get his well-rehearsed line out in verse 21, uh, while the father is embracing him. I love this. And absolutely, I I just love it. The father doesn't even acknowledge the son has said anything. Didn't even hear him, it seems like. His son is back. That's all he cares about. He's just going to, he's going to give him a robe and throw a ring on him, and we're going to party. He didn't even hear his son's line, his well-rehearsed line. Principle. God doesn't stop at mercy. I got to unpack this a little bit. God doesn't stop at mercy. Grace, sorry, grace doesn't stop at mercy. What do I mean by that? If the father would have taken the son back as a servant, in my opinion, even that would have been mercy, okay? 
more than he deserved. But he doesn't stop there. He gives him a greater mercy by not giving him what he deserves, being a servant. He, he at best deserved to be only a servant, but the father doesn't just show him mercy by not giving him that. In fact, he doesn't even listen to his son's nonsense about what he deserves or doesn't. But he gives him grace on top of that mercy by letting him come into his house, coming into dinner. That's the first grace. But then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just let his son occupy a room in his mansion. Uh, he gives him more grace. He gives the son a father again. He brings him into his arms. He adopts his son again. It's mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. So another principle, loaded with principles this morning. Principle, grace is all about unconditional restoration of a relationship, not a circumstance. Grace is all about unconditional restoration of a relationship, not a circumstance. Not just, I should say, not just a circumstance. Forgiveness and mercy isn't the end. It's the beginning. Adoption and restoration is the end. This picture of the father running towards you, embracing you, throwing a royal ring on your finger and a priestly garment on your back is the end of it all. It's the point of the gospel that we talk about so much. The gospel is relational first, not circumstantial first. Too often I hear Christians speak. Um, too often I read Christian books, um, hear Christian songs that stop short. They speak of a situational, circumstantial gospel as the highest good, that the best we have to hope for are no more tears and no more pain and no more sickness, or maybe even just entering into our Father's house is good enough, or getting to occupy a room in that house or in a wing somewhere is the best to hope for, and that that's our greatest good, but it's not our greatest good. It's being in his arms. One of our fellow pastors in our Crossway Chapel Network, John Williams, he's down in Arizona. He's dying of cancer. Barring a miracle from God, he will soon pass into glory. And as he looks towards the finish line um, and beyond to the starting blocks of the rest of his life, um, the best thing he has to hope for is not a cancer-free body, but the image of his father running toward him. The feeling of his father's strong arms wrapped around him. The sweet sound of his father's voice in his ears, well done, son, well done. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. I treasure you. I love you. I wrote that before I knew Doyle Simmons passed away. And I can just only imagine that as free, as awesome as it is that he's free from sickness and free from his, 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 his temporal body and he has a new body, the greatest good he's experiencing right now is being in his father's arms, his daddy's arms, being loved, being treasured, hearing those words, well done. I can't think of a saint I know of that deserves to hear the words well done more than him. It's, it's being in his daddy's arms. That's the greatest good. That's the gospel. Heaven is a place. It's a beautiful, wonderful place where there's no more sin, no more pain, crying, suffering, loss, no hunger, no thirst, riches beyond our wildest dreams. But if God isn't there, truly with us, Emmanuel, in every way, even physically, yes, in physical arms, I believe, uh, it would be hell. All of that would be meaningless because hell, what makes hell, hell, is because God's not there. And what makes heaven, heaven, is because God's there. And we get to be with him. Um, eternal life is a relationship. That is the end, not just a place called heaven. So John 17, 3, um, Jesus defines what eternal life is. It's knowing him and uh, knowing the one who, whom he, or knowing the father, know, knowing the one whom he has sent, Jesus, knowing them in a relationship, intimate relationship. That's eternal life. That's the greatest good. Intimate relationship, not riches. Riches is the cool icing on the cake. The cake is a relationship. Um, parents, the best thing you could do is teach this to your kids. Show them the point of it all over and over and over again. Open up this passage and the countless others that show them their true father's love for them. Teach them the gospel. But parents, don't just teach your kids to look at the gospel. Teach them to look with it. 
Don't just help your kids see the gospel. Help them see with it. The gospel's not the object of our worship. Um, it's the thing through which we see the object of our worship. It's not enough to teach them they're sinners. Jesus took their place. He died on the cross so they wouldn't have to. He raised from the dead, defeated the death and hell so that we might also be resurrected from the dead and experience heaven. That's really good. They need to hear that. They need to understand that. But what's the point of that is that they could be in their father's arms. It's, it's what the gospel points to that they need to hear. That's the good news of the good news. Principle, the gospel is first relational and second circumstantial. Teach your children this. Say to them, Jesus didn't live perfectly. Die as your substitute. Defeat sin and death to get you out of a pig pit and into a nice place only. To get you out of a place called hell into a place called heaven All of what Jesus has done is for this, to bring you by his side and into his Father's arms. That's the gospel. Teach them over and over to look at the Bible with that gospel as a lens. Not just look at the Bible for the gospel, if that makes sense. Teach them to look with it. Um, Parents, the biggest mandate we have, um, those those explicit dozen or so verses, the biggest theme that recurs is like to to teach your kids diligently what God's truth says. And this is how to do it. If when we teach them, and if after looking with the gospel of scripture, if at the end of it all, they don't see a loving father running toward them with open arms, we're doing it wrong. If at the end of what you tell them, they just see a way out of a bad place into a good place, you're doing it wrong. If they just see happy circumstances with no more pain, no more tears, and streets of gold as awesome as that is, and they don't see a father running toward them with open arms and a ring and a robe, we're doing it wrong. All that other stuff is a result of the relationship. It's not better than. So we're only giving them mercy, not grace. We're only telling them about justification and not adoption. Please keep on. We need to keep on telling them about justification. Don't hear me wrong. Like, don't, we, we can't stop saying those things, but we just need to like, add more to it. Um, how many parents um, of kids under two do we have here? Raise your hand high. Be proud. Okay. Um, teach your kids the gospel right now. And you're like, well, how do I teach a two-year-old and under the gospel? You can absolutely do it. When children are really young, the only gospel they can grasp is actually the most important part of it. The highest grace and the best kind of love, the best news of the good news we could communicate, withness. Emmanuel, your embrace. Um, so, so they don't understand God yet, but they do understand what it means to be embraced. I believe it's no accident God designed nursing to work like, you know, it works best when it's like a close, intimate embrace by the mom, right? That's no accident. He didn't feed kids by like choosing parents to like just like push a button and lob something their way so they could eat it or put like a, you know, a thing on their crib so they could eat like a gerbil. Um, It's, 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 it's embracing, um, it's embracing. And so that is actually, I believe, a way to teach the kids the highest end of the gospel, that they get to see that at the end, that they, when, when, when you tell them and they understand later that all of Jesus has done for them and what it leads to, they get it because they saw it in you first when they were, before they were six months old. They felt their, your embrace. God with them. Emmanuel, that's the point. Last passage, Psalm 103, maybe one of the best chapters. Um, Dan read it for us in the Bible to see a gracious father, but guess what? We don't have time <laughs> to unpack it. I um, fully intended to just like stay there the whole, the whole morning, and it just, I, I, God just led me other places. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to submit it to you for your homework. Here's your application and response. Look at chapter 103 of the Psalms with the gospel. Look for the Father running toward you with open arms in that chapter. Believe it. Emulate it for your kids um, in it. Uh, do what the Father does in that passage for us. Do that for your kids. That's how you parent them with grace. Do what the Father did for you. Yes, it's that simple, I believe. Show, and then last, show them the Father in it. Look at it with them. If they're old enough, show them this passage and say, kids, where do you see the Father in here? Where do you see his love for you? And the last thing I'll say, if you've noticed in these passages, whenever you read scripture, God doesn't ever tell his people that they are the center of his universe. 
um, he tells them that he's the center of their universe. He tells them that he loves them, he treasures them, but he's more interested in showing us who he is, not who we are. Parents, don't make your kids the center of your universe. Point them to the one who is the center of theirs. I'm going to quote that book one more time and we'll be done. As it turns out, it doesn't all depend on us. The Bible is full of examples of spiritual giants producing rascally children and noble kin coming from polluted loins. While the proverbial wisdom of Scripture, Proverbs 22.6, and the promises of the covenant, Genesis 17, tell us that good Christian parents and good Christian children normally get, go together, we must concede that God is sovereign, salvation is a gift, and the wind of the Spirit blows where it wishes. And he quotes another author, as Fields put it in her Christianity Today article, parents with unbelieving children, friends with children in jail, the discoveries of the geneticists, and the faith heroes in Hebrews 11 are all powerful reminders of this truth. We will parent imperfectly. Our children will make their own choices, and God will mysteriously and wondrously use it all to advance his kingdom. So as much as God uses us as agents of his grace, we can know this one thing. It's this hope, this, 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 this thing that should take away all fear. This principle, last principle, that God's grace trumps our imperfect parenting every time. Let me pray and bring the worship band up. God, we, uh, I just know I've been so blessed and so filled up this week looking at your word and looking at you, Father, in your word and um, just seeing you for who you are. Lord, um, I pray that if there's anything here that might encourage or might have encouraged or might have um, inspired or convicted, Lord, I pray that um, you would do your work, Holy Spirit, in people's lives and parents' lives, Lord, and even in children's lives who maybe didn't have that perfect example of grace as in their parents, Lord. I pray that children here, which is all of us, would look to you, Father, for our source of grace and not to, um, e- even when and when, especially when our parents have failed us. Um, um, thank you so much for loving parents. I know many of us have loving parents um, who have tried their best to show us who you are, God. And um, many of us have that. I thank you for that. It's a blessing. I pray that we would be a church filled with parents who are really, really interested in showing their kids the grace of the Father. Lord, so help us do that in your word. And um, we just need your wisdom. And um, thank you for just your example, Father, that we could praise you and know that we are loved and treasured by you when it has nothing to do with the work we do. It's just how much you love us. So thank you for that truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name.